0: Good morning everyone. Uh, we're reading from uh, Hebrews. Uh, we're starting in uh, chapter four, and reading the first 13 verses. So if you want to turn, you can read along with me as we read God's Word together. Okay. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Um, hi.
1: Everybody okay? Good. Um, you probably have your Bibles open to chapter 4 already, but um, if you haven't, go ahead and do that. Um, if you if you don't have a Bible, there on that desk as you come in, there's some blue Bibles out there. You can either get up and get one now, or you can take one on your way out. That's just our gift to you. We want you to have um, the Word of God. I will warn you, though, um, take it with caution, because it will slice you open, as the, this uh, scripture just said. It will... It will wound you in a way. Um, But as a physician, kind of wounds to heal. um, It's pretty amazing. So uh, kind of buyer beware there. Um, Let me just remind you who this letter is written to. Um, It's written to first century urban Christians um, who are so weary of troubles and difficulties uh, that they are in danger of giving up. Um, From what we can pick up on um, about this audience. Although it seems our cultures are they're about two thousand years apart, I think we have a lot in common with them. Um, and in fact what the author is, is telling us in, in chapter four here and in chapter three, it's incredibly relevant to us. So like I said last week, our, our culture is kind of described as all destin- all signposts, no destination. Uh, we're fast paced. Uh, we are all about the sound bites. We're all about the quick videos. It's over like fifteen seconds, I'm not watching it. Um, uh, we, we're all about new and better products, experiences, we're about instant access, no buffering, um, instant information, opportunities, gratification, sprinting really from one life experience to the next. Um, it's possible that our society is the busiest, the most kind of overworked society that's ever been. Um, that may or may not be true, but my point is we, we hardly stop. We are incredibly overworked. Um, one of the things I've, I've uh, experienced, and you probably experienced this as well, uh, especially over those kind of months and months of working from home uh, during the pandemic, uh, this last week, I worked from home. I found that I, working from home, I don't work um, less. My, my productivity can be less, but I actually feel like I work more. You're, you're kind of always on. That, that line between my work time and my time off is just obliterated. Um, so we have this kind of, accessibility, we're always plugged in, um, problem that causes us to overwork. Uh, Tim Keller says there's another reason why we're so overworked, and it's a cultural one. And um, He says that in traditional societies, we got our identity, and you got your value from being part of a family or a community. Um, you identify your, 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 your identity or value is because you are a Son or a daughter, or you're a member of a, a certain community or a certain nation. Uh, we, on the other hand, we are the most individualistic culture that's ever been. Um, it means our identity and our value, it's not something that is given to us, it's something that we have to achieve, it's something that we have to earn. Um, so it, it means our relationship with our work is completely changed. So your work is how you gain your identity, it's how you gain your value. It's about how much you can earn. It's about your, your status, your, your social class. So our work is incredibly important to us. Um, the result of this, though, is that there's never been a society that's so restless. We're so exhausted and weary and anxious. It means we're desperately in need of rest. And, and we're not in need of just a physical rest. A rest that like a really good holiday can, can give you or a really good nap. It's where have a much deeper rest uh, that we're in need of. I wonder how many of you can relate to that. How many of you are exhausted? You're weary. How many of you are anxious? And the answer to that need for rest is what the author is focusing here in chapter 4. And it's really, he's continuing his thoughts from last week, from chapter 3. Chapter 3 was about rest. He's introduced this idea. And we looked at that last week. In verses 7 to 9, he was urging his audience to, to, to take care, to, to pay closer attention, to, to examine themselves, to, to exhort one another, to look after one another, lest we have a, an unbelieving heart. Unless we have this heart that has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he's saying, what happened was they turned away from God because of that faithless heart. Um, and the result was they were unable to enter the rest, God's rest. They fell in the wilderness. Um, so remember, he's using that story of the first Exodus, um, that the people of, the, uh, of Israel in the wilderness them being delivered from their bondage of, 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 of slavery in Egypt, and Moses leading them on this journey to Canaan, this, this promised land where they will enter into God's rest. and um, He's using that as a foreshadow of our story. So their exodus is pointing towards this greater exodus that Jesus does. That Jesus, he's the one who, who delivers us from our bondage and our slavery to sin. He's the one who, who's making a way for us to experience rest as well. And, and the warning last week was don't be like that generation, which, which experienced amazing things, which got so close to experiencing that rest, but they didn't enter. They, they fell in the wilderness. And the reason they, didn't, uh, they failed to enter was because of unbelief we're told. And, and, and he says, in order not to be like them, we need to take care. We need to uh, persevere to the end, be watchful over our souls. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to tend to our hearts, lest they be deceived by the sin in our lives. Remember, we said this, this perseverance is, this, is a community project. You, you cannot do it on your own. You need one another to remind each other to exhort one another to plead with one another not to be deceived by the sin in your life that is that is trying to tempt you into believing that something or someone is better than Jesus we all and we do this in order to hold our original confidence firm to the end so entering the rest is the goal that's that that was for for them don't he's saying don't be like the wilderness wanderers who didn't persevere to the end they weren't able to enter that rest because of unbelief And in chapter 4, he's building on that argument. And that's why he says in verse 1, he says, Therefore, so that means because of this warning I just laid out for you, here's some important action that you need to heed to. And verse 1, he begins, chapter 3 ends pretty dire. They weren't able to enter because of their unbelief. Chapter 1 begins with some really good news. So he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed or reached it. So um, he begins by telling his audience this amazing thing, that the promise of entering God's rest is still open. It's, it's, it, entering his rest is still available, available, it's still on offer. That's really good news for us, isn't it? So if you were one of those people who said, John, I am exhausted, I am weary, I am anxious... And The fact that this promise of entering God's rest is still available is really good news to you. So you should be kind of leaning forward a bit here. You should be wanting to, to pay close attention to what he's about to say. Um, that wilderness generation failed to enter God's rest because their hearts were hardened, okay, because of their unbelief. But if you keep reading their story, well, the next generation... That comes after them, they kind of grow up in the wilderness, and they do get to enter into God's rest. They do. Joshua is, he does eventually lead them into the promised land, and they do eventually experience God's promise of rest. But the writer of Hebrews is telling us that because, just because they entered, that wasn't the end of the promise. He's saying entering God's rest is still open. It still stands. Remember, their story is just a foreshadow It's merely pointing towards something greater to come. So their goal was entering that land, Canaan. That's the rest. But that's just a picture of the the spiritual counterpart. That's the goal of of God's people today. Um, Entering his rest is still available. That promise could be yours, which is really good news. But he says with the very same breath, in the same sentence, he says, don't forget the lesson that I just laid out for you. Don't be like those wilderness wanderers whose hearts went astray. They they, they didn't hold fast. They they experienced amazing things. They experienced God do uh, incredible things, but in the end, they, they failed to enter that rest because of they didn't have genuine belief. They thought they were part of something amazing, but they weren't. Their hearts were unaffected. They were hardened. And the result was... Let's pack it in. Let's go back to Egypt. So the author tells us in verse 1, because of that, let us fear, lest any of you should, have, should seem to have failed to have reached it, lest, lest you end up like them. And, and notice he includes himself in that. He says, us, let us fear. So the preacher is preaching to himself here as well. What does he mean by let us fear? Um, does, he need, does he mean that we need to be fearful people? kind of shaking in our boots, does he mean that, hey, be careful because you can never fully be sure if you're in or out. So, so live in fear. I don't think that's what he means because, as you'll see next week, he's going to give us, give us this reason why we can confidently and kind of boldly enter God's presence So in that context, it doesn't make any sense for him with one breath to say, man, you just can never know if you're in or out. And then the next breath say, confidently enter God's presence, confidently draw near to him. Um, It doesn't make sense. I think what he is saying is he's saying the same thing that he said in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care. He's warning us against having this this attitude of, man, I'm all good because I said a prayer. I'm in because God led me through that, that sea. All that's left for me now is just to wait. That, that rest is mine now. He's warning against that. Some of you need to hear it said in this way. Hey, be careful lest any of you become bored and indifferent and eventually become hardened in your heart. And failed to embrace God's promised rest by faith in Jesus. Because some of you have been, you've been raised in church. You've been in church your entire life. You simply assumed that you're okay. You assume that you're spiritually safe. You have nothing to fear because, man, you're, you're a decent Northern Irish Protestant. You attend a Sunday gathering. You don't have a, you've never committed this a serious kind of public scandalous sin. So you're spiritually safe. And he's saying, brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous mindset to have. If that is your, your kind of attitude, then you may be like those people in the wilderness who in the end, it's, it proves that they didn't have genuine faith. It proves they, they, that, 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 that nothing actually real and lasting did happen to them. So he says, fear that that's not you. Take care, brothers and sisters. Pay closer attention lest you drift away. Have vigilance over the state of your heart. Examine yourself. Exhort one another. You're you're, you're, you're to look after one another in this way. He's saying there's this spiritual battle happening. Fight. And so if, if unbelief in your heart leads to exclusion from the rest, and if, if belief leads to entering the rest, the author's saying, tend to your heart. Pay, pay attention. Don't let your heart be hardened, leading you to fall away, leading you to one day abandon this living God. And then he reiterates his argument in verse 2. He says, for good news came to us just as it to them. So them, that's the people in the wilderness. He's saying, they heard the good news just like we've heard the good news but he says, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And he says, for we who have believed enter that rest. So, so they heard the good news, they heard this gospel, but it didn't benefit them. Why? Because although they heard it, they, they didn't receive it with faith. They didn't receive it with belief. He says, on the other hand, in verse 3, we who have believed, or, or we who have heard the message, but receive it with genuine faith, we do enter that rest. So really simply put, you enter the rest because of faith, because of belief, because of belief that results in persevering to the end. For those who are unable to enter that rest, it's because of unbelief. It's because they've they've heard the message, but they didn't appropriate it with faith. They didn't receive it, the good news, uh, with faith when they heard it. Some of you may be asking, is it because of their unbelief? Is it because of their faithlessness that they're not able to enter the rest? Or is it because of their disobedience? So is it this heart thing or is it an action thing? You might be looking at chapter 3, verse 19, that says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But then in chapter 4, verse 6, it says they failed to enter because of disobedience. Which one is it? The answer is those two things go together. Unbelief and disobedience go together, just like belief and obedience go together. So remember we said last week, um, it's this kind of cause and effect thing, so when we're we're looking at those verses on the necessity of persevering to the end, that we are God's people if we hold fast to the end. I said that holding fast, that, that persevering to the end, it's, it's that continuing in obedience, that's the, the proof that you are God's people. It's the proof, it's the evidence that we are indeed partakers of Christ. It's the evidence that we do have genuine faith in Jesus, Simply put it simply, our obedience is the fruit of our belief. But the opposite then is true. So if if obedience is the proof of our, or or the evidence or the fruit of our our belief, then on the other hand, disobedience is the evidence of unbelief. It's it's the result of faithlessness or unbelief. And in chapter 2, the writer is saying, both groups of people have heard the good news, They've heard the message. What's the good news? There's this good news of rest. Okay? For, the, for the people of Israel, this good news was that God was bringing them out of slavery and is going to deliver them to the promised land where they will find rest if they trust him, if they only trust him and obey his voice and keep his covenant. There's this trust, there's this belief That's the evidence of that is obeying his voice and, and keeping his covenant. And the same is for us. We heard the good news. And that good news is that Jesus will deliver us from our slavery and our bondage to sin and also uh, bring us to, to experience rest if we place our faith in Him, our trust in Him, if we have a belief that, that then results in, o- in, in obeying His voice and keeping His commands. That's what James says, when he, It's what he means when he says, Hey, faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. You need the proof. The author is saying only faith can enter rest. We who have believed enter that rest. Believed what? The message spoken to us. The message that this good news, the gospel of Jesus, that he has come to deliver us from our sins and bring us into true and lasting rest if only we believe in him. If only we put our faith in him, we who have believed enter that rest. And, and the writer's and his exhortation in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is to make sure that belief is genuine. And he says you'll know that belief is genuine if you are vigilant over your hearts. If you are striving to fix your gaze on Jesus. If you are fighting not to be deceived by sin not letting your heart go astray. You're exhorting one another daily to persevere in the faith. For we who have believed enter that rest. Um, I want to take a moment and explain, I want to lean into that, what rest is. What does he mean by rest? Um, most scholars actually agree that this is one of the kind of more complex sections in Hebrews 4. Um, and it's complex because the author, he's, he's using rest in, in kind of several different ways. He's applying it to, to several different ways. And, and it's. It, I don't even know if, you've, if, if even when Thomas was reading that, the first time I read it, it's like, well, I'm not really following you here. Let me, let me lean in for a second a little bit and, and, and hear again. It, it's almost like he's, he's squeezing every last bit of meaning out of this word rest. It's like a diamond. He's looking at different facets, and you see different, uh, different angles and different beautiful things, something new and beautiful I think the question is, when do we experience the rest? Um, and the way the author applies the word helps us understand. So that's what I want to look at here. The first way he applies it is in verse 4. Uh, he quotes Genesis 2, verses 1 to 2. Notice he says somewhere it says... So, the, the chapters and verses aren't originally in there. <laughs> so he's not going to say, hey, in Genesis 2, because that's, that's not there. So he's like, hey, you know where it says this? Um, this is, and he's quoted, this is the first mention of rest in the Bible. And you all know it. It's, it's, it's when God rested on the seventh day after he had completed his work of, of creation. And I found there's two interesting things here. Firstly, when you are in Genesis 2 and you read through that creation narrative, those first six days, each of the days ends with this line, and there was evening and there was morning, day one, day two, and there was evening and there was morning, day two, and evening and morning, day three, each of those get, has that ending, except for day seven, it's left out of day seven, day seven is this like open-ended day, it's this, it's this, uh, this day that doesn't have an end. It's interesting, some scholars point to this as suggesting that, that the rest, it's not limited to this location or a place in time. God's rest is seen as this open-ended, it's this, it's this present reality. And another interesting thing is in verse 5 of Hebrews 4, how God speaks of the rest. So he's, he's speaking, in verse 5, he's speaking about the people of Israel and their unbelief, and he says, they shall not enter my rest. It says, my rest. That could mean one of two things, or both. Um, it could either mean it's the rest that God gives, it's, it's, it's the rest that God bestows, it's mine in that way, or it could mean it's the rest which God himself enjoys. Um, I'm confident it's the latter because of that context of, he's just quoting Genesis 2. It, it's, it's, this, it's the rest in which God promises his people it's a share in the, the rest that God himself is enjoying. I think it's amazing, isn't it? The rest that God enjoys right now because his work is done, it's something that he wants you to share in. It's something that he wants you to, to participate in. If only you respond to his gospel in faith with belief. So in that sense, it, it almost seems like Rest is something that we experience now. It's a present thing, isn't it? Even he he keeps using that word today throughout these chapters. Kind of supports that as well. Another way he uses rest, though, is in that kind of geographical way. So, for the 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 promised land of Canaan was this expression and this offer of rest from God to His people, and as we saw that. That, that wasn't the end of, of his promise for rest. Okay, it's still available. But for them, it seemed to be something they were journeying towards. It's something that they failed to enter. And in verse 11, he says it's something that we, we should strive to enter that rest. So in that way, it almost seems like it's something that we are journeying towards. But then again, he jumps back and he uses the present tense again. See how it's so complex. In verse 9, when he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And those, those two words in your Bible's Sabbath rest, it's actually one single word in the Greek. It, it literally means Sabbath keeping. It's it's this it's this participation in God's own rest. It's this celebration of our participation of God's rest. And even back in verse 3, he says, for we who have believed enter that rest. He doesn't say we shall enter that rest. He says we enter it. So that's again back to the present tense. It's complex, but is it something we experience now or is it something we experience at the end? I think the answer is both. And this is this here and not yet reality of the kingdom of God. That The rest is present it's experienced today, but it's also something that is still to come. George Guthrie says uh, that Christian realities have been inaugurated, but they have yet to be consummated. Therefore, the rest is something the believer enters and thus experiences now. But, it, but this rest, in its fullness, remains the promised destination for the future. I think some of you need to hear. One, or, one of those things. So for some of you, God's rest is something for you to experience today. It's available for you today. This is the very heart of Jesus. He says in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. he says, "'Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do You need to hear that this morning, that there is rest for your weary and heavy-laden soul. If only you come to Jesus, if you learn from him, if you receive his message in faith and belief, there's rest for your soul today. I think all of you need to hear that but we also need to to understand that there's a rest to come that we are striving towards, we are journeying towards, that we are hoping for. There's this full consummation of the rest waiting for you at the finish line. There's this rest we are journeying towards that we will experience when we are forever in the presence of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There's going to be a time when the former things have passed away. His rest is experienced here and now, today, in the midst of your sufferings and your trials, but also fully and forever in the end. But, that, but, but His rest is for those who respond to Him in faith. His warning is don't end up like those people in the wilderness. It's because of their disbelief, their unbelief and their disobedience, they failed to enter that rest. Which is why he exhorts us one more time in verse 11. He says, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter it so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. F.F. Bruce says, he says, at this point, Verse 11, we have this view of this glory that's accessible by faith, but you also have this view of the disaster which follows upon unbelief. Our author urges his readers once more to make it their earnest endeavor to attain the eternal home of the people of God and not miss it through disobedience like that of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, again, don't hear what he's not saying. So he's not saying obedience will get you to heaven. That's a works-based salvation that the Bible does not teach. He's saying that your obedience or your disobedience, it's the result of what's in your heart. It's the result of of your belief or your unbelief. And this is what will determine whether you enter his rest or not. So remember Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not, a, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So your works will not get you to heaven. They will not give you access to God's rest. If that were true, Jesus would have praised the Pharisees. They would have been first in line. But he, he didn't. He had harsh words for them because he's concerned with your heart, with your inner righteousness. He wants, he wants your heart, your belief, your faith. Obedience and works come after that. And Jesus is after your heart. He wants you to do what he says in Matthew 11, for you to come to him. He wants you to draw near to him so that you can learn from him, so that you can experience his heart that is gentle and lowly. Because it's precisely there. It's, it's there when you're, when you're with him, when you're near him, when you're learning from Him, when you're trusting Him, when you're fixing your gaze upon Him, when you're considering Him, when you're abiding with Him, it's there where true rest is found. I think this is on the screen. Look again. How, this is how Jesus describes His rest that He offers. Sorry, it's not on the screen. I didn't send it to you. I'm going to read it to you again. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to this. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how Jesus talks about rest. That's how he describes rest that he's offering. So, Keep that in your mind, in light of that, how are we to understand Hebrews four verse 11, which says, there, "Therefore let us strive to enter that rest." What does it mean to strive to enter his rest? In light of what Jesus says? When he says, "My yoke is easy. My burden is light." You know what a yoke is. The yoke is this um, heavy crossbar that an ox would wear as she plows through the fields. There is this picture of striving of working hard, of plowing through. But Jesus says, my yoke that you wear with me, it's not burdensome. My yoke is easy. And Dane Ortlund, he writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I recommend everyone to read. He says we need to be careful when we understand that word easy, what it means. Jesus isn't saying that your life will be free of pain and hardship. He points out that that word is often translated as kind or good or loving. He's saying, my yoke is easy. When he says, my yoke is easy, he's using irony. He's saying, my yoke is a non-yoke. It's a yoke of kindness. So in light of what Jesus says about his rest, that it's easy, that it's, that it's kind, that's good, that it's not burdensome, what does Hebrews mean by striving to enter his rest? It can't mean that it's this burdensome striving to enter. In, in the context of chapter 3 and chapter 4, the word that keeps coming to my mind when I, when I read him say, strive to enter that rest, is this word surrender. I get this from the, from the context. So in the previous verses, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, he describes the rest for the people of God as this Sabbath rest. That it's this, this participation in God's own rest, that we rest from our works and we experience His rest. That's what that Sabbath is. We rest from our doing and we participate, we experience, we celebrate His rest. See, entering God's rest, it's not about your efforts. It's about celebrating His we enter that rest, we enter God's own rest, not by celebrating and placing our faith in our efforts, but by celebrating and placing our faith in what He has done, what He has accomplished, that His work is finished. We enter that rest by grace through faith. So this striving, I think it what is what Paul means when he says in Colossians 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Even physically, you're, here you're not physically dead, but you, you, are, you are spiritually dead. But your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or he says in Galatians 2, says, for I have been crucified with Christ. In Romans 6, he says, those who have placed their faith in, in Jesus should consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So when someone dies, what do we say? May they rest in peace. So even we have this idea that rest comes after death. And that's the New Testament uh, teaching as well, that we enter Jesus' rest through his death by having faith in his death, what he's accomplished, that we are crucified with him and also raised with him in newness of life. So this striving to enter that rest is this surrender. It's this submission to Jesus and what he's accomplished. It's 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 giving up on our own efforts and depending on his, resting in what he has accomplished. Striving to enter that rest is to deny yourself. It's this dying. It's this it's going against this, this instinct to make it on my way on, on my own, to, to, to earn it, to, to achieve it. The striving, it's it's actually this effort to submit and to trust in him. And so then the question is, submit to what? Well, if you go back and read through chapter 3 and chapter 4, he quotes the same passage over and over again. Three different times, he quotes Psalm 95, 7 to 8. Chapter 3, verse 7, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. saying this over and over again. Today, submit to God's voice. Don't go astray in your hearts. Surrender to his voice. Surrender to his word. Which I think is why he immediately talks about God's word in verses 12 to 13. Read with me again from from verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's a famous passage. I'm sure everyone's heard it several times before. Uh, we spent an entire sermon on those two verses alone Um, Let me give you my best kind of two-minute version as we draw to a close. Um, I can do it. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews is telling us in order to enter God's rest, in order to attain that rest, it's necessary not only to hear God's voice but to respond respond to it with believing hearts, with faith. That's, the, that's his point of chapter 3 and chapter 4. The, the word of God has come to us and it cannot be disregarded. Um, the Jews actually had this real special idea about words spoken. Um, so once a word was spoken, once it left the, the lips, it, it had, its, it had a, an independent existence. It, 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 was, it wasn't just the sound. That, that um, had a certain meaning, it was a power that went forth and did things. And this is what, G- what God says. In, in Isaiah 55, God says, "So shall my word so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I promise, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it." God speaking, speaking, creation into being putting stars into into space because his word goes out. He says, when my word goes out, it accomplishes what I I want it to. It's it's this purpose. And in verses 12 and 13, he gives this, this stunning, and if I'm quite honest, terrifying view of this word of God. He says it's living and it's active. Leon Morris says, we're not to think of dead words in a book, a kind of parchment pope. I love that. We are to think rather of an utterance of God as full of vital force, as dynamic, as active in bringing about God's purposes. It's living, it's active, it's accomplishing things. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. He doesn't say it's as sharp as a two-edged sword. He said it's sharper than any sword. And what a, 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 normal swords, what they do is they, they penetrate physical matter. The Word of God penetrates our deepest recesses. Our, our, it, it pierces the division of our soul and our spirit, cuts us open. So that, he says, the Word of God judges us. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Even those deep and hidden parts that you think are just yours... There's things that you hide from those closest to you. Your friends, your family, your neighbor. The parts that deceive even you. God sees it all. God knows it all. And, terrifyingly, will call each of us to give an account of it all. And that's the warning here. To the wilderness wanderers, he says, my word is living and it's active, but you've ignored it. You grumble and and you complain. You got bored of it. Your hearts were hardened to it. And you failed to enter my rest. The author is urging us not to be like them, that we are to strive to enter his rest by hearing his voice, today and surrendering to it submitting to it receiving it with believing hearts to strive and to conduct our lives in accordance with this living word notice it says it discerns your the the intentions and the thoughts of your heart that's all that's what he's talking about for chapters here he's been talking about your heart don't let your heart go astray don't don't let your heart be hardened be vigilant over the state of your heart. So if, like, if, the, if this word exposes our hearts, it reveals our hearts, of course we should want it. Of course we should be diligently um, holding fast to it. Because nothing is more important, the writer says. James 1 says, don't be hearers of the word. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of it. And this word that is living and it's active, that slices you open like a surgeon, it reveals what's in your heart. The author is saying, don't just hear it. Don't just read it. Let it read you. Let, let, it, let it open you up. Let it reveal what's in there. And, and it's a different way of approaching the word, isn't it? Approach it humbly. Approach it to Receive. Approach it ready to be sliced open, ready ready to be healed, ready to be transformed. Lest we fall away and fail to enter that rest. You stand with me and, and we'll pray. And let's just close our eyes and Just reflect on that message. Um, I wonder what you are doing to strive to enter that rest. What are you doing to come to Jesus? What are you doing to draw near to Him? To listen to His Word. This word that is living and active and effective. What are you doing to to devour this word? To learn from him? To enter his rest? Father, we thank you that you love us and you come after us. Jesus, you love us and you you come after us. These hearts that go astray, you're after those hearts. You want those hearts. You want us to draw near to you. Thank you that you first draw near to us. I pray, Lord, for those who are exhausted this morning, those who are weary, those who are anxious, those who are in need. May they draw near to you, Lord, for true rest is found. May we humble ourselves. May we receive your word. May we, may, we, may we stop depending on our own efforts. May we rest in yours. May we celebrate what you've done. Celebrate that you are resting from what you've accomplished. Your work is finished. May we rest in that work, Lord. May we experience that rest today. Even in the midst of our hardship and our struggles, And we experience your rest today, Lord, this peace that is beyond understanding, this joy that is indescribable. And we hold fast as we work towards this rest that's for us in the future, that will be forever, that will be unhindered. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.